It's a joy to be opening the word of God with you this morning. If you would turn to Psalm 1, that's where we'll be. As other men from our church, besides Eric, maybe when he's gone, he's actually gone these next three weeks, um, have opportunity to preach, we've decided it would be a neat thing for us to go through the Psalms. And so we're starting that today. And we pray that this would serve as an opportunity for our church to better understand the Psalms, that these exercises through them would provide, would be beneficial to our worship, uh, both corporate and personal. The Psalms is a collection of songs and hymns and poetry all centered around worship. So over the next few weeks, um, this week, next week, and the following week, as Eric is out of town, we have the privilege of going through Psalms 1 through 3. This morning, I'll preach on Psalm 1, Psalm 2 next week, and Mark 7 will preach on Psalm 3 on August 4th. John Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn here to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. In good times, there's nothing better to express praise to God than through the words of the Psalms. In bad times, nothing better can remind us that God knows our sorrows and our troubles, and there is no better way in the midst of those trials to express our faith in him. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as an introduction to the whole Psalter, to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 focuses on the overarching wisdom theme of the psalm, that throughout the psalms, It talks about how to live among the ungodly, namely that the righteous are to cling to the word of God and love it. It's the foundation for a righteous life. Psalm 2 gives attention to the prophetic theme of the Psalter, that there is a coming messianic king who will rule over the earth. Psalm 1 is a psalm that has great practical implications for our lives, for our daily living. Um, and so I pray that the Lord would use it in our lives today and moving forward um, as he has in mind as I've gotten to study this passage. So with that, would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 1 and we'll read it. Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Most often in the Psalms, the main idea behind any given Psalm is found in its opening statement. In Psalm 1, we read, Oh, how blessed is the man. So before we go any further, I want us to understand that this Psalm is about to tell us how we can be blessed. Yet, 
in our world and in our daily lives, what it means to be blessed or have blessing might be misunderstood in relation to this psalm. We bless people when they sneeze. Maybe you have a sign that says, bless this home above your doorway. Taylor told me while we were talking about this that since she's had our son Ezra in the last four months, that more people have walked past her in a store or in public and said, God bless you, uh, smiling at the little baby in her arms than ever before. Even more, we use the term blessed to describe our physical situations. When we come back from a nice vacation, we tell our friends how blessed we were to experience everything it had to offer, and we let people know we feel blessed when we get a raise, when we buy a house, and when maybe our kids get into the college of their choice. Contrary to this, though, Psalm 1 speaks of a blessing that is far greater than any of the things we see. This word blessed, ashray in Hebrew, is a word that can be described as being in the enviable state of right standing before God. One commentator put it, being blessed is the joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God and have the pleasure and satisfaction that is derived from from that. The blessed life that we see in Psalm 1 is a life that is actually filled with divine prosperity, with joy, with security, and with divinely given happiness. To be truly blessed is to be at the dead center of God's favor. And so I hope that you want this kind of life, a life that will be filled with divine prosperity, with divine joy, and with divine security. Let's clarify, though, that divine godly prosperity is different from worldly prosperity. We'll see that as the psalm unfolds. So Psalm 1 upholds this kind of man that we see in verse 1, the blessed man who is righteous and it juxtaposes them with the wicked or the ungodly. Makes it clear that there are two alternative types of persons and two alternative destinies that we see here. You are either righteous or you're wicked. You are either blessed or you are condemned. My dad has something that he said for, uh, I think, as long as I can remember. And it goes like this. There's two kinds of people in this world. Italians and people that wish they were Italian. So I'll let you guess where we're from. But the point is that you either are or you aren't. You're either in or you're out. One of the essential differences that we'll see between the righteous and the blessed and the wicked who are condemned is this, that the righteous person delights in God by his word. They devote themselves to it while the wicked scoff at God at his word, and at those who would follow it. This leads us to the point of the psalm that those who would wish to live a blessed life will devote themselves to God by his word, experiencing God's blessing forever rather than perishing in judgment. So Psalm 1, as an introduction, stands at the door of the Psalter and says, all who enter here delight in what you read. Some of you might read this psalm and you say very plainly, reading it just as it is, if I do something specific, then I'll earn favor with God. But this couldn't be farther from the actual truth because human action alone cannot 
earn favor with God. Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14, tells us there's none who does good. There's none who seek after God. We know that mankind is depraved and dead in their sin, yet Psalm 14 tells us, again in verses 4 and 5, Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. So though there is none who does good, there actually is a righteous generation. There's a generation of righteous ones, but outside the sphere of God's special sanctifying work, which in the psalmist time would have been president, would have been present in Israel and now comes through faith in Christ, outside of God's sanctifying work, men are enslaved to sin, but within the sphere of God's sanctifying work, men can be righteous. But you might have a second objection to Psalm 1. You might say it sounds like the blessed man is perfect. Sure, people can be righteous, but this is far above what I can do. The good news is, is that when we read what the man is not and what the man is committed to, though in English they might look like they are things that are perfectly true. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. He does this. It doesn't seem like there's room for error there. In Hebrew, there's no mistaking that there is um, a clear uh, uh, meaning of, he's talking about the general acts of a person, that which generally characterizes their life. Not that which is in every single moment of every single day. You can't make a mistake true, but that which is generally true, that which characterizes the man. This is good news for us. This is good news because this means that the blessed man can be you and I. The blessed man is not something unattainable. A blessed life is something that we can have. So in light of this, as we look at our text this morning, there's gonna be three facets of what it looks like to walk in the way of the blessed man rather than the wicked so that you and I might be blessed. So we're going to see what it looks like, how to have blessing, what it looks like to prosper in blessing, and third, we're going to see the security of blessing. So in verses 1 and 2, turn there, look at it. We're going to see how to have blessing. We've established what it means to be blessed, And here the psalmist describes the root and the source of blessing in this man's life and in our life. It's twofold. First, the blessed man has separated himself from the world. The ungodly or the wicked, as your Bibles might say. Second, the blessed man has consecrated himself, has devoted himself to the word of God. And separating from the world, we read the blessed man has not done three things. He has not walked in the counsel of the wicked. He has not stood in the way of sinners. And he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. To walk speaks of the patterns of, one, of one's life. Counsel speaks of just that, receiving guidance. So to walk in the counsel of the wicked is to take your cues from the world, allowing their voice to direct you. The ESV calls these people wicked. We can, we can understand them as the ungodly These are those individuals who in the psalmist's time wouldn't have been under the covenant. In our time, these are individuals who have yet to trust in Christ for salvation. If you take guidance from the world, if you take guidance from unbelievers, do not expect that it will lead you down a road of blessing and life. 
So the psalm asks us questions. Where do you go during hard times? When you're sad, when you're anxious, and you're depressed, what is it that, lets, that you let guide your thinking when you are making decisions? Do worldly values guide your thinking? If so, the psalmist says, beware. The second thing we see about the blessed man and about us if we are to be blessed is that he does not stand in the way of sinners. Notice here that the verbs have gone from walking to standing. To walk is to pass by, characterizing um, maybe even that which is the man's life, but to stand means you have stopped, you have observed, you are considering the life of the ungodly. You see their sin, you see the lifestyle it leads, and you think, maybe that's for me. Maybe Maybe I could start doing those things. I'd probably be fine. It looks like they are experiencing prosperity. It looks like they're enjoying themselves. Maybe I belong here. James 4.4 though says that whoever wants to be a friend of the world will be at enmity with God. In fact, makes himself an enemy of God. So this characterization of the blessed man warns us to examine that which we put in front of ourselves. What do we willingly observe? What do we look at and desire? Next we see even further that the man sits, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. The one who sits in the seat of scoffers now dwells among the ungodly partaking in their sin, doing that which does not honor God, even more like a scoffer openly with their mouths, despising God, mocking him, chastising him, reviling him, and all those who would trust in him. They do this by their acts and by their words. The psalmist warns us again here. Those who subscribe to, who approve of, and live by the wisdom and pattern of the ungodly in this world. They will not be blessed. Those who love the world will not experience God's blessing. Do not listen to the world like it has something good to say. Do not look at its pattern of living and wonder if it might be for you. It's not good to try. It's not a good example for you to live by. The language of the psalmist intensifies both verbs, walk, stand, sit, and description of the ungodly, ungodly sinners and then scorners. The language he uses calls you to be decisive in breaking off from the world lest it lures you in. Don't begin to consider what they have. Don't begin to listen to them. Do not begin to partake in their lives If you don't cut off worldliness from your life, then you will soon find yourself walking by, then standing to look, and then soon sitting to enjoy the world, the pleasures of the sinners. But we cannot simply forsake the world and experience blessing. To not do something will not lead to us living a blessed life. And so we read the second part of the man's blessing the foundation for his blessing, and it is that his delight is in the law of the Lord, verse two, and on his law he meditates day 
and night. He has devoted himself to the word of God and by implication, his love for the word of God leads him to love God and devote himself to God. He has forsaken the world so that he might consecrate himself to the word of God wholly and completely. He delights in it. He meditates on it. The law of the Lord generally refers to the whole of scriptural revelation here. It is the word of God and it is this law that a blessed person will delight in. If your life is to be filled with blessing, it ought to be characterized by a yearning for, a joy in, and a satisfaction in God by his word. The law of the Lord is the blessed man's treasure. It is that which is of great worth and value to him. You cannot love God's word if you do not love God. For the very nature and character and attributes and intricacies of his perfections and message of God are found in his word. It is the very words of God. Thus, those who are blessed tonight delight not just in God, but they delight in his word. But they, but they delight in himself. This means that the one who finds deep pleasure and satisfaction in the law of the Lord is one who has come to truly know God personally. You cannot delight in God if you only know him on an intellectual level. If you only know facts about him, you will not delight in him. You must know God personally, spiritually. This is only possible through the work of Christ. You will not be the blessed man unless you have trusted in Christ. The psalmist trusted in the coming Messiah, and this is what we now trust in. Those who love God trust in Christ and his work to save them. Do you delight in the word of God? Do you delight in God himself? If you don't, what gets in your way? What is it that distracts you from it? You have to ask yourself, are there parts of the world that I need to renounce so that I might wholly consecrate myself to the word of God? We see that he delights in the law of the Lord, but we also see that he meditates on it. The natural outflow of a love for God by his word leads to a deep and continual devotion to the word of God. He meditates on it continually, always, day and night. This word meditate actually has a sense of murmuring or repeating uh, to oneself, mulling over, likely meaning that the blessed man knows the word of God so deeply that he can recall it at any moment so that he might consider it. Meditating on the word of God day and night means that you speak to yourself the word of God continually throughout your day. It's important to remember that the psalmist here would not have had his phone on his Bible like you and I do. He wouldn't have easy access to it. It would have been a scroll most likely. You can't carry that around in your pocket. And so to be meditating on and mulling over the word of God, he would have had to have it committed to his mind through memorization most likely. If we want to have great delight, the great delight of being in fellowship with the living God hour by hour, what does that look like? It looks like God speaking to you by his word through your memory, through your meditation, through the Spirit illuminating 
through application of his word, and you're speaking to him words of thanks and praise and admiration and desire, seeking for help and guidance to understand it. The word is where we hear God speak. The depth and the soundness and the certainty of your walk with God and your communion with the living God will rise and fall with whether God's own written word is the basis of your fellowship with him. If you're not in it, it's hard to know him. To go further than what we read here, but can, we can likely infer, is that if you meditate on the word of God like the blessed man does, count on being so wrapped up in the knowledge of God, all that he is, all his beauty, that you will respond to him in prayer, praising him for the great delight that it is to know him. Do you want to pray biblical prayers? Know the word of God. It will saturate your mind and it will influence the way that you pray. Know it well. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 instructs us to pray without ceasing. If we're to do this, if we're to have a blessed life, we must know the word of God so that we can set our mind on it and delight in it every day throughout the day. Meditation then, delighting in the word of God, takes truth and makes it very practical, turning it into prayer and to praise, which leads to obedience in our lives. The word of God is the constant in the life of the blessed man. He meditates continuously. Leads us to ask, what's the constant thing that occupies our lives? What is the constant thing that occupies my mind? Is it the law of the Lord? Do I delight in it that much? Do you enjoy Bible reading and Bible memory and Bible meditation? If not, what is it that's getting in your way? What should we do if Bible reading is drudgery and seems like a burden in our lives? What if it just feels like we have to drag our feet just to open its pages? We struggle with Bible reading and memory and meditation because we don't find pleasure in it. Because other things are distracting us. We're giving our heart and our minds to TV, to work, to social media, to the news, whatever it is, we let our minds be occupied by that which is not God's word. Perhaps you say, well, that may be true, but I'm not really a reader, and I'm really bad at memorizing things. Uh, Just don't do it. But if there was great delight in your life for the word of God, you'd probably be eager to find a way to make this work. So we must ask the Lord for help. We must confess our need to God. We need to ask him to help us see the glories of his word and all that is in them. God is able to transform our hearts and our minds so that we might delight in him by his word. He will enable us to do so. John Williams was an English missionary to the South Pacific in the early 1800s. One day, as he arrived, um, supposedly at a township or something, he was greeted one day by a native who shouted this, Welcome, servant of God who brought light into this dark island. To you, are, to you we are indebted for the word of salvation. But something struck 
Williams about this man, and it was his appearance, for he had no hands and no feet that had been eaten off by disease so that he had to walk on his hands and his knees. So in reply to this man's greeting, William asked what he knew of the word of salvation. He answered, I know about Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. So William said, what do you know of Christ? The man replied, I know that he is the son of God and that he died painfully upon the cross to pay for the sins of men in order that their souls might be saved and go to happiness in the skies. But something was still bothering Williams because he did not ever remember seeing this man anywhere he had taught, anywhere he had done something on the island. So he asked, where did you obtain your knowledge? The native replied, as the people return from the services, I take my seat by the wayside and beg a bit of the word of them as they pass by. One gives me one piece, another piece, and I collect them together in my heart by thinking over what I thus obtain and praying to God to make me know I understand a little bit about his word. If we had the desire of this man, nothing would get in the way of us and the word of God. Nothing we'd get in the way from meditating on it or memorizing it or committing it to our lives. Do we really have good excuses to ignore the word of God in our lives? Do we really have good excuses to turn to other things? So the blessed man has forsaken the world and devoted himself to the word of God. If you would turn with me to Psalm 119, This is what many call a Torah psalm, referring to the law. It speaks of the great treasures of the word of God, the great delight that is to be found in it. Starting in verse 33 of Psalm 119, it says this, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. And your righteousness give me life. Going down to 44, it says this, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place where I have sought your precepts, your law, your word. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Go even further again to 54. Behold, the glories that are the word of God, your statutes have been my songs and the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The writer of Psalm 119 takes great delight in the word of God. He loves it so much that as verse 56 tells us, he keeps it. He obeys the Lord. The true people of God are always marked by true obedience. This brings us to the second part of Psalm 1. How the word bears fruit in our lives. So we've seen first in verses one and two how to have blessing. When we turn to verses three and four, we're gonna see what it looks like 
to have a life that actually prospers in blessing. The foundation for this prosperous life is the devotion of God to his word that the man has. Because the life of blessing is one that bears the fruit of love for God and his word. The analogy here is that of a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And so we see that the righteous man who delights in God's word is firmly planted and fed, is fruit-bearing, and is prosperous. The blessed man is firmly planted and fed continually. Speaks of the bl- he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Speaks of the blessed man's relationship to the word. A tree by a stream is firmly planted because its continual source of nourishment is right there. Its roots run deep and are strong. They soak up that which sustains it. The man of God delights in it. He meditates on it continually. The blessed man is planted in the word and continually fed by it. The life rooted in the word of God is secure and strong and healthy like this tree. It lacks nothing because all it truly needs, it has. Second Timothy 3, you probably know this verse well, 16, it starts, all scripture is breathed out by God. It ends that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that the blessed man is described not as a channel for the stream, not as something that it runs through to get to another destination. No, this man is a tree who soaks up the nourishment of the word and produces fruit because of it. He takes that which is true of the word of God, internalizes it, and responds in obedience. So we see that the blessed man bears fruit in its season. If you meditate on the word of God, if you delight in it truly, you can expect fruit in your life. You know the kind of people that are like this. They are life-giving to be around. When you leave their presence, you leave fed yourself, strengthened and reinvigorated to a life that would be committed to God because they are so enwrapped in Scripture that it pours out of them. Their words are like scripture because of their saturation in it. They're healing, they're convicting, they're encouraging, and they're enlightening. Good works flow out of those who are rooted in God's word. This fruit is born in its season. It's important to understand in season because every healthy tree goes through different seasons. An apple tree It does not always in every season produce the same thing. One season it will have no leaves. The next it will have leaves. Then it will produce blossoms. And soon it will bear an apple. We have a uh, lemon tree on our porch that we bought when we moved out here. It's a dwarf Meyer lemon. And you would not know it was a lemon tree because there has been no fruit on it. It got hot one day and this little bud it had was gone immediately. But followers of God are not like that. Through various seasons... Seasons of hope, seasons of sorrow, seasons of hardship, even the season that feels dull. In every season, a healthy Christian bears fruit. Seasons of hope, it will be easy to bear fruits of peace and patience and trust and joy. In seasons of hardship, your fruit in your life may be growth and learning to trust God. And in seasons of sorrow, 
your fruit may be turning to God in praise through lament. How do we know that this is true? That he is bearing fruit continually in different seasons because we see that his leaf does not wither. The blessed man, he is durable. Consider this. Hot winds are blowing. No rain is soon to fall and all of the trees that are planted are shrinking away, withering. They're barren and dying. But there is a tree that you see that has yet to give in to the elements. It is planted firmly by a flowing stream that does not run out and will not dry up. This tree can be you because despite the heat, your leaf will remain green because delighting in the word of God is like being planted by the stream. The happiness of the tree planted by the stream that bears fruit is durable. It's strong and unfading. Its roots run deep, its trunk is thick, and its branches are plentiful. It does not depend on the direction of the wind or whether rain will fall. It gets its life not from those things, but from an unchanging source, which is the word of God. And so the blessing of being rooted in a love for God by his word is that you do his will and his good pleasure in all seasons. And in each season, you'll bear appropriate fruit. You will be like what is described by the prophet in Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18. It says this, Though the fig tree does not blossom, there's no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the clock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, this will be you. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. We see even further here, though, that the blessed man doesn't, isn't just firmly planted, doesn't just bear fruit, but that he prospers in all things. Right here where it says in all that he does, he prospers, it's even been translated, in all he does, he is successful. What does it mean that we prosper. You might be saying, so if I delight in the word of God and meditate on it, am I going to experience financial success? Will people like me? Will I get promotions? Will your life be free of accidents? When you don't align with the world and instead devote yourself to God and his word, you'll be doing the kinds of things that God approves of. When you delight in his word, you're trusting it. And the Lord works for those who trust in him. Yet, to prosper and have success as a Christian, as a follower of God, does not mean you will experience material blessing necessarily. Scripture gives us good reason to believe this, that God does not spare his most faithful from hardship. Consider Job and the way the Lord allowed his life to be afflicted. Consider Psalm 34, 19 that says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 73 speaks of wicked people even prospering in this life. While the righteous often suffer. Matthew 5, 11, as Jesus speaks on the sermon on the mount, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James 1.12 says that the man who stays steadfast under trial is blessed, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
God's blessing to those he loves, to the faithful, to the righteous, may very well come by way of trials and persecution. But Psalm 1 promises prosperity, but it doesn't promise worldly prosperity. The blessing of God isn't based on our circumstances. Rather, like Romans 8 tells us, all that happens, everything we do, everything enacted upon us is promised to prosper those in Christ. For it says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So being blessed by God means you'll have all that you truly need as you bear the fruit of righteousness, but it does not mean you'll have everything you want and every worldly desire. It means instead that you will flourish in God's good purposes into eternity. We'll see more of that as the psalm moves on. But before we move on, this psalm presents us, like I said previously, with those who are righteous and those who are wicked, and there is a stark contrast. We see it in verses 1 and 2 the life of the wicked in contrast to the life of the man who would delight in the law of the Lord. And here we see it in verse 4 where it says, Unlike the tree, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The same way that the blessed man's devotion to God's word results in being healthy, fruitful, and truly prospering in all seasons of life, So it is true that because of the wickedness of the wicked in their sin, they will bear the fruit of that which they are devoted to. They are called chaff. They are not a plant that bears fruit. Rather, they are the refuse of a plant. I don't know if you know what chaff is. Probably if you've sat in church for any good amount of time, you've probably heard other illustrations like this. Chaff is this thin paper-like filament that sits on the outside of wheat. Other plants have it as well. And um, when they would go to the threshing floor and beat out the sweet, they'd be beating off the chaff and essentially it just flies everywhere. If you've ever had it in your hands or you've ever seen coffee roasted, it has chaff. It's seriously like paper and you could just disintegrate it in your fingers. It is nothing. It is like dust. It blows here. It blows there. It has no bearing in life. This is the life of the wicked. They may have blessing or look like they have blessing today, but if they carry on in ungodliness and sin, they will have nothing to stand on in the presence of a holy and just God. Those who are wicked, when seasons of drought and strong winds come, they dry up. They are blown away. There's no true security for them in life. They reach for other things and they constantly fail. Their ultimate end is that they do not belong with the righteous like you see in verse 5. And that they will not be able to stand before Almighty God. There will be a day when Christ returns to judge the world and those who do not delight in God's word, who do not know God and walk accord in accordance with his word, those who carry on in ungodliness and sin will have nothing to stand on in the presence of a holy and just God. Their blessing today is even under God's control. But soon they will not be able to endure 
the judgment that their sins and their scorning and their mocking deserve. It's quite terrifying, actually, the book of Revelation. Christ is shown and he's described pouring out his wrath on sin as treading the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God, literally stomping out his wrath on the ungodly. These people won't be able to stand before God, let alone be seen amongst the blessed congregation when this time comes. The gathering of God's people from every tribe and nation and tongue who have bowed before him in adoration and have been pardoned by Christ's blood, they're not accepted here. Rather, they will be cast out, left to stand before God on their own. And so there may be those of you sitting here this morning who have yet to know God because you've yet to trust in Christ for your salvation. You still find yourself walking, standing and sitting in rebellion against God, both in your words and in your actions. You might even attend church regularly. You you can be here often and be in this camp because you do not truly love God. And so Psalm 1 serves serves as a warning to you. Turn to Christ lest you experience the great wrath of God that has been stored up for you. It's not too late. Today you can forsake your sin. You can turn from the world. You can repent of what you have trusted in and you can turn to Christ and him alone and nothing else trusting him for salvation. Christ can make you righteous. Christ can make you love God so that you love his word. For on the cross he paid your eternal penalty for sin. That all those who would trust in him for salvation might be saved. You don't need to bear the penalty. Trust in Christ and his finished work pays the penalty, the judgment we read here for your sin. But know that the cost of following Christ is great. It means forsaking your former life as the blessed man has done. But be sure of this, that the pleasures of Christ and following him, having right standing before God and access to him as your father are far greater than anything the world can offer you today. If you've been here, you know that sometimes our sound machine uh, makes lots of noise, and uh, this is one of those times. Understand, though, that if you are not in Christ, you can not be blessed, but if you would trust in Christ, you can be blessed. You can have a life that is secure. You can have a life that is full of true joy. You can have a life that is actually foundationally happy. You can have a life filled with prosperity. You can delight in God. He can be your treasure and his word can be your guide. You only need to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You can be eternally secure. You can have the eternal security that we see of the blessed man in verse 6. We have seen how to have blessing. We've seen what it looks like to prosper in blessing. Let's now look like, now let's look at what it is to be secure in blessing. The righteous man has a far different end than the wicked because the Lord, as we read, knows his way. 
This word know is often used in a salvific way. The Lord knows the blessed man and he will go on flourishing in God's eternal purposes because the Lord has set his eye and his favor on him. This is the man that is truly blessed. The man who honors the Lord. And the one who honors the Lord can do so because Christ has made him pure. This is the man who is at the dead center of God's favor. And as we said at the beginning, is described as this. Having the joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God, experiencing great joy, great satisfaction, great hope, contentment in all circumstances. So the blessing of Psalm 1 comes as a result of something specific. It is the result of delighting in God and in his word and devoting yourself to it. I hope you've seen today that the book you hold in your hands, the Bible, is extremely important. We devote ourselves to the preaching of the word week by week, to the reading of the word week by week because of its importance, because it is God's word. We ought to commit our minds to the word of God and our very lives in action to the word of God so that it would saturate our thinking and our living so that we may experience this great and prosperous blessing. Put away all that would stand in the way of you delighting in God. It's not worth it. It never will be. As you cultivate a desire for God in your life, you will experience a great and lasting joy. As we close, would you turn once again to Psalm 119? And we'll read starting in verse 98. May this be true of us. Psalm 119, 98. Sorry, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Would you please bow and pray with me? Lord, may we be like the man we see in Psalm 1. Lord, give us a great desire and affection for you, Lord. Give us an affection for your word so that we might be blessed, God, that we might live by it. Lord, help us forsake the world. Help us forsake the simple things in our lives that keep us from your word. Make them apparent to us, Lord. Convict them. Convict us of them. Help us to bow humbly before it, Lord, eager to see its glories and its truth, eager to see you at work as you redeem your people. 
Lord, keep our church steadfast in its commitment to your word as its foundation. Lord, a hundred years from now, may this church still be rooted and grounded in your word, bearing great fruit. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that we may trust in it. Lord, let us live by it. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Amen.